Hey everyone, Greg Meskel here joining you on another episode of What's Good, a really inspiring story on this week's episode. We're joined by Paralympic gold medalist, excuse me, we're joined by Parapan gold medalist and Paralympic hopeful Kevin Huffley joining us from Eustis, Nebraska. Kevin, thanks for taking the time. Hey, no problem. Thank you, Greg. Kevin, I reached out to you because I read your article on teamusa.org about your journey and it is one that is inspiring. I know you've told this story before, but what's what's been the feedback when you get a chance to kind of tell your journey and and all that you've been through do you hear from friends family what do you hear back yeah i hear um i hear back that you know it's the biggest thing i probably hear back is every time you think that nobody else is going through something that you're going through we kind of all are going through that it seems like um you actually kind of find people that you haven't talked to in a while or this and that that you know have anxiety have depression and have things going not so great in their life and something that are going off in their life but you know different days can detect or dictate kind of which way you're leading you know some days you get up and want to rule the world and other days you can't get out of bed um it's just a crazy crazy mental mental problem and mental um i guess just adventure that you have to go through every single day to kind of get your get your mind right and your story is is one with a lot of kind of twists and turns and it you know goes back to having a gun accident making a decision to amputate your foot then battling addiction and then getting healthy and getting a chance to compete for team usa i'm kind of summarizing what i know was a lengthy journey for you but if if we go back first to to the accident and getting through that what what was that process like for you? You know, I'm talking with people that have had to gone through this in the past, right? Where they where they have to make that decision on amputation for a, for a better life. That is a um, it is a difficult one because it seems to fall into two buckets, right? There's like the actual losing of a limb, but then there's the the after effect as well. How did you kind of process that in the moment, and what was that journey to getting to a place where you felt good about it all? So what kind of saved me was. Um, they actually wanted to cut it off that night when I had the accident, when they flew me from Kozad in the helicopter to Omaha. And I had the option, they wanted, they were recommending to cut it off that night. And I pretty much said, no, I want to keep it. I want to try to do surgeries. I want to um, make a decision later on. You know, even though you're not thinking about that, pretty much you're just, that night we made a decision that we're going to try to save it. So I ended up having like four surgeries in the first five days. Um, they pretty much opened it all up, cleaned it all out and put it back together as well as they could. As far as the mindset about cut, amputating and this and that, I was so lucky to be able to have a foot and know that it was never going to be the foot that was going to let me live a lifestyle that I was accustomed to and that I would be happy with. So when I had my accident was October 23rd, 2005 and, and January 13th, um, by that time I was pretty much on my foot walking again. It wasn't, I had maybe like a size of a, a half dime. Um, that was left to heal. Other than that, my whole foot was healed. The skin was all there. Uh, no feeling in my foot. Um, and it was fused. So it was pretty much, you know, I had about a half an inch of movement. In my ankle is all I had. So I did a few things. I tried to do things I would normally do in my foot. Um, it was going to be me limping around like a 90-year-old with a cane the rest of my life. That's pretty much how I was going to live my life. And we had our annual bull sale in March. And I tried to help in it, and I really couldn't do anything. And that was pretty much the uh, the the day that I pretty much decided that that was not going to work for me. And I ended up calling my doctor on Monday, I think, and telling her to schedule a surgery. Um, and then March 30th, 2006, when I actually had my amputation. But to me, it was one of the easiest decisions, just because I knew the lifestyle that I wanted to live and the, the life that I wanted to 
and the things I want to do in my life um, as an active person, as an athlete before this happened, I would rather not have it. And it was just going to hinder me instead of, instead of help me. Um, I did a little research on prospects before this and found out, you know, they came a long ways since the wooden legs from pirates and this and that. But I mean, you just, you have, you don't have a, you don't, you don't, you have an unknown until you actually go through the whole process. But like I said, for me, it was just, it was pretty simple after I knew I couldn't, I couldn't be, uh, be on the foot I had and couldn't really do things I wanted to do. It was, it was pretty simple. I just had to get rid of it. Yeah. And that's interesting that you had the opportunity to kind of get it back almost to a healed place. I, I don't think many get yep. that chance, right? To no. kind of know what life could look like and then make the decision. So I just yep. said that really did kind of maybe take some of the guesswork out of it. Yes, it did. Yep. Yeah. And, and so uh, after that, then when does it dawn on you, you know, and we'll, and we'll come back to some of the other stuff that you kind of work through there, but when do you start to get into wanting to compete and run again? I know that was something you did in high school at a, at a fairly high level. How did you circle back to that uh, after you get the prosthetic? Um, like two months after I got the prosthetic. Like <laughs> guy, like I had a running leg made as soon as I could um, functionally be in a running leg. Um, and I was actually at UNK running track um, at a college, and I tried to come back just way too soon. Um, my stump wasn't healed. My body wasn't healed. You know, I was obviously had atrophy the whole time. I hadn't do much. And, you know, this was so I really didn't get my leg like, like great. Okay. Until like June. Um, so like I tried to run right away, like August, September, and just, um, just wasn't going to, I tried a few, I mean, I tried a, a practice here and there. It wasn't like I was, I wasn't going anywhere fast. And the team was very supportive at UNK and they let me come back and train with them as much as I could. But, it's just, you know, I slipped a staple in my stomach, so I was still bleeding. Um, the fits weren't great yet. My leg wasn't – had an atrophied enough to where it's at now, so I still had fitting, or issues with fits, and I didn't know anything about prosthetics yet. So I came back way too soon. So, But, you know, that's how I live all the way in or nothing. It's pretty much how I live my life. It's all or nothing. So I'm glad I tried it, and that's actually when I, I – uh, transfer from the college I was at to an ag college in SEC in Beatrice, Nebraska to get my ag degree to get go back home and to farm and ranch with my family then. And so then in those years to follow and for those that have read the story they they know that that you'd go on to battle addiction and drinking was a problem. <laughs> Did the accident spur some of that on? Was that always a thing that was there for you? Yeah, um, the accident definitely, like, it, it didn't start out me being an alcoholic. It started out me just having a lot of fun in college and going to a lot of parties and hanging out. And then after the accident, it, it kind of went to, um, one, depression. That I can't do things I want to do yet. I'm not where I'm at. And then, two, I was still in a lot of pain um, as far as fits and not being able to wear my leg like I wanted to and not being at the active person that I thought I could be right away. It just wasn't – I wasn't being patient with myself. So um, that spurred on, you know – Drinking was a way to escape from not having to take. Um, I was lucky enough not to be addicted to opiates and the Percocet and Oxys and this and that. I did abuse them at one point in time, but I didn't ever get hooked on them like alcohol got me, which I guess that's very, I'm very happy that I didn't have both things to battle at the same time. So um, I didn't really take any, take any drugs just because I was always, I was just drunk, <laughs> to be honest. Like I had to keep that buzz going to, to function, to just um, get to the point where I could walk around and be social and this and that and not feel like I wasn't the person I wanted to be just as far as mentally it was just as bad as physically it was just to get over the anxiety of you know people saying oh you're doing great this and that one to me I wasn't doing great at all 
like people kept saying, Oh, you're doing awesome. Like in my mind, I was doing nothing to be, I was doing nothing to, to take that compliment. I wanted to say, no, I'm not like, you don't understand. Like I should be at a higher level everything I'm doing than this right now. And I just didn't give myself enough time. So like in my mind, I was doing horrible, but you know, put on that front, you had to, I had to get my mind to a point where I was okay re receiving those compliments, even though I didn't understand and didn't want to receive those compliments. To, to give people a little context, because I think a lot of people view themselves as maybe they're a social drinker, like to go out and have a good time. If you think back, what's that threshold from, I'm a social guy, I'm hanging out to, okay, this is maybe too much. I'm, I'm still functioning, but even in my own head, I know I've kind of crossed the line here. When you start um, creeping up, you know, from seven o'clock at night to five to three in the afternoon to noon to 10 in the morning, next thing you know, you're getting up with a beer. Um, and that's kind of, you know, you knew you have problems, but you don't want to admit it to yourself. You know, there's days where maybe you wouldn't drink till noon. So you just say, oh, I'm doing great now. And the next day you have to get up and have a beer right away or a shot just to uh, get, you know, get kind of your, like your morning coffee just to get the body functioning just, just to start working. So I was never the drop down drunk that you would see um, not being able to do this or that. I would say, you know, I could, I would do anything I, I would do normally. I just had that buzz going on the whole time just to be just to, on that next level. So I could, I could socially be social and not have the pain I was having. And is this a thing where people are oblivious? Like you're, you're, you're able to carry um, on with this? At first, probably because I was, I was in college. So yeah. I was different than probably 90% of the people I hung out with because we were at a party school. We, you know, the first couple of years was just, you know, maybe just hanging out. Oh, it's Saturday, start day drinking all day long. So that, you know, I fit in there. But when you start going home and you start going to, um, you start doing things that you would normally do without drinking, that things that are making you anxious. So you have to drink before you go to those little functions. That's when you kind of figure out that it's, it's not, just for fun anymore you're, you're dependent on this thing for you to get you through the day um that's kind of when you kind of start you know you don't you don't tell yourself you are right away even though halfway probably through my out being an alcoholic i knew i was had problem but until you're ready to fix it yourself it doesn't matter who talks to you or what they say it's not going to change it until you decide on your own that you're done yeah you 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 shared a great anecdote in the, in the most recent story about you know something like you meet a friend at a bar and they wouldn't have known that you had had five drinks before you got there, three yeah. of them you go home and there's others. And so it's kind of spread out. And so in your interactions with people, maybe they aren't seeing the full scope of your day. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I could have probably, um, of course my wife and my family kind of knew I had a problem this and that, but as far as other people I don't see all the time, they would probably never know I had a, and if you weren't very, very close to me, there was no reason for you to think I was not calling. What, what does the average person that doesn't, has never dealt with this or doesn't have a family member or a close friend that's dealing with addiction. What, what don't they realize about it? That you literally have no control sometimes about what you're doing. Like you think mine was more about functioning and about habit. So when I would go check cows or this and that by myself to put salt and mineral out, I knew I could take a six pack and I could drink it over the two, two hours I was doing this. And I wouldn't, after it, you wouldn't be able to tell I was drinking, but it would make me feel great the whole time doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, so in my mind, everything I did equated to drinking. So every time you do something sober, you know how many drinks you could have doing that job or doing that task and still be okay to hang out and still not just be blah. Um, so I just don't think, I don't know. Everybody's different in how they do recovery and how they're an alcoholic and this and that. But I just think mine was, for me, was more about habits and about the same thing. And I'm kind of having an addictive personality anyway about things, you know, about once I got sober about working out and kind of 
you know, eating right. So I, I kind of have that same problem. So we add alcohol to that and it's just, it, you know, it takes it times 10. In the story, and, and you've told us before, but August 7, 2015 is the day you decide that you're going to make a change. In, in the movies and in books, they always talk about someone having this bottom out moment and then they say, this is it, now I'm going to make a change. Did you, did you have something like that or was it just purely, it was time? I, uh, I had to go to a wedding in Kansas City and I must have been busy before I went because I didn't have anything like bought or small bottles hid to go on the drive down there. And so I drove all the way down to Kansas City with my wife um, and Chesley, my daughter, with, with nothing hid, nothing to drink. And I got down to the hotel and didn't go sneak out and get anything. Went to the wedding and went to reception. Um, they had alcohol there, didn't drink, didn't, try to, didn't go try to hide it, go steal it, go to the bathroom and drink it. I just didn't, I don't know. It just, I went one day and then it went two days. Next thing you know, it's like, I don't have to have it. And it was just kind of snowballed into me never drinking again knowing that if i'm this far ahead if i ever have one just sip again i'm going right back to where i started from again you know it's funny you talked about kind of doing these calculations of okay i can do this thing and know that i can do it on five drinks or whatever it is and i'll be fine and now it seems like you kind of apply the same math like going the other direction i got to this mm -hmm. day and i felt good and i got to day two and i feel good was were there some similarities there absolutely it was the same thing it was you know um I do the same thing with almost like, you know, getting back in shape or this and that, you know, everything I do is a day at a time. If you look at the full spectrum of things, like the, the big picture, sometimes you get so overwhelmed about it. Like if you told me um, I would be five years over five years sober five years ago, I'd be like, I would be, I would relapse in that time at least a couple of times. I have it. Um, so to me, it's like, if you take things and, and like when you're, when you set a goal and you start stair-stepping that goal, it's the same thing to me. If, if you want to, be sober you start with one day start with one hour start with 10 minutes i mean literally start with five minutes like whatever you got to do to your mind your body is one of those things where it can handle a lot of things your mind is sometimes very 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 weak um you can be the strongest person in the world too but at the same time if your mind is not right you're not going to be able to do what you want to do you're not going to be able to help people you want to help how does uh being on a team competing in sports compare when, when you're training, when you're working out, if you're eating right, you, you can see those tangible marks, right? You're faster two months mm -hmm. from now than you were today, for example, that sort of thing. Is there a comparison to that and kind of the day by day journey of sobriety? Oh, for sure. Um, I get this and addicted to this, the training part is I did it alcohol, to be honest, which is, I guess not a great thing, but at least I'm putting it towards something positive. Because, you know, when you, when you start seeing your results, or, you know, I'm 35, so for me to get abs back and to finally get to that point where you start seeing triations in your muscles again, and because I was almost 200 pounds when I was an alcoholic. So I've, you know, I had to drop down the weight and I'm starting to build my muscle back up again slowly. So um, it's fun to see those, those, little, those little steps that you make towards your goal. But um, you can also get, like I said, overwhelmed by looking at the whole picture. Like if I, when I first started training in 17, in January 17, I was telling people I wanted to make Team USA. Like, I didn't know if it was even possible for me to make it. I didn't know if my times were going to be good enough. But I just threw it out there, and I just started doing small things to, get, to make that goal. And, and you know, here I am. I got my stuff four years later on my sober date. So that's, you know, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't write it better than that, that the UPS no. man drops off your USA gear on the anniversary. It's, it's yep. really fantastic. Yeah, um, and I don't know, I don't even know, like, you know, coincidences, I don't even believe in them because there's got to be a higher power working, obviously, because that just doesn't happen. Like, um, on my sober day, you know, four years literally to the day, I get that big box with Team USA stuff in it. And it's just, I don't know, it's just, I, 
I've never had those feelings. I, I think I had the same feelings probably when my kids are born and on the podium in Lima, Peru, and I won the gold medal. But that feeling doesn't come around very often. You know, you have to hold on to something like that to keep pushing you on the dark times. You told us about kind of coming back to running when you first got your prosthesis and it wasn't the right time for it. How did mm -hmm. you end up getting back to it in 2017? What was the impetus to get back there and why was it different this time? Um, I think I was watching the Paralympics in 16 and kind of looking at their times and I never ran the 100 or 200 in high school or college, but I knew I ran the 400 and I kind of knew what my times were and what the, they were running the 400. And pretty much I, I said to myself, I don't do it now. This is it's never going to happen. I'm just going to have to just do it. I mean, if I'm not good enough, it's fine. I can live with not being good enough. But what I can't live with is regret of not knowing if I am fast enough to, to, do, to do this journey and to try to impact some people's lives. So, you know, that first time I ran in Kearney after t 10 years of not running was ugly. Um, and still, I'm still not a sprinter. Like, it's crazy to say that, but I've only been sprinting for three years. So for me to, I'm still learning the basics of sprinting yet, to be honest, and trying to, to evolve so fast to make the Paralympics. Um, you know, it's kind of like I equivalent to like, I'm like a junior in high school right now trying to sprint because I hadn't used blocks until 2017, not once in my life. So I'm so, so far behind on the technique and this and that. But one thing I do know how to do is compete. Um, and that is where I usually shine. Um, I won't be outworked. I won't be the person that's going to make excuses. And that's usually where I get, you know, ahead maybe of some other people as I'm still really, really hungry. I'm not taking any of this for granted. Um, being 35 and trying to compete, compete against the best in the world with, you know, a family, jobs, um, only, you know, sometimes an hour a day, sometimes 10 minutes, 20 minutes to, to find time to work out or to train. You know, I'm just not going to make excuses anymore. Well, and you certainly know how to compete for those that have not followed. Uh, Kevin winning gold in the 100 last summer in Lima at the Power Pans and then silver in the 200. That's a meteoric rise from 2017 mm -hmm. to then podium at the Power Pans just a couple of years later. So to talk about that you're still working on the technique, that has to give you some confidence feeling that you've already done some great things and, and you know that you have some area to improve. Yeah, Lima um, being my first international track meet, the biggest stage I've ever on, um, I, I did I did all right. I'm still – I'm always going to be the hardest of myself. Like, I wanted to have faster times, to be honest. But, you know, to win and get silver, what what else can you want? So, when I got to Dubai for the World Championships, um, I kind of was a little more calm, ready to go. Kind of had the whole, you know, warm-up thing kind of down for the bigger, the call rooms and all this and that. And, you know, for me to get fourth place by .03 in the 200 was more, more motivation than anything because I, I ran four days in a row. Um, and I PR'd in four races in the 100 and 200 in prelims and finals for in four straight races. So I had an amazing, amazing world championships, even though I came, you know, came around with fourth in the 100 and fourth in the 200. I couldn't ask for more except for maybe just a little more lean, but I couldn't lean me far because I, I literally fell after the finish line. So I couldn't, <laughs> nothing else, nothing else I could do. We, we talked about you overcoming the addiction part of things. You hit on mental health earlier as well. How did you manage that going forward? What's that journey been like to get into a better place about that? It's tough every single day. Um, you know, sometimes, like I said before, you can go out and want to compete for the world championships or for the Paralympics and be the best athlete in the world. And other days, it's hard to get out of the bed, you know, just because depression hits you or you're anxious about things. Um, I battle with anxiety and depression every, literally every single day. And, you know, exercise to me and working out and playing with my kids and things I can get my mind off of what's making me, anxious is what I, what I use a lot to, uh, to combat my 
my mental problems I have. Um, I'd say uh, for me, working out is a way to forget because you get in that zone where you're just kind of hitting it hard or, or running or sprinting and it's just fun to get there. And I get to work out a lot with my kids. They get to come help me at the gym, the wellness center and the track as much as they can. They come with me. So I always have the best coaches and the best people, you know, my little kids always watching me and they make you work just that 10% harder. Um, and then after you get a good workout in, even if it's a crappy workout, to be honest, you feel better. So it kind of takes away, you know, you didn't want to get out of bed that day or whatever it was. And you kind of get a workout in, you kind of feel like you can conquer the world again, even though you had a crappy workout or something when it didn't go your way, you can handle it now. But and I think people have really realized that during the pandemic, especially when things have been closed and shut down, uh, mm -hmm. than usual that if you can get some kind of workout in a little mm -hmm. something, it does, it does bring a little bit of brightness to your day. Like you said, even if it's, uh, not, not your, not your personal best at all. Um, so you hit on that and I, and I thought that was uh, important talking about it because in your article you had mentioned that, you know, you kind of grew up not, not really hearing people talk about mental health or, or mm. knowing anyone that was dealing with, with, with depression. When, when you finally come across people that are talking about it, when you're able to talk about it, how does that lift the weight off of the whole thing a little bit? Oh yeah. If people realize, you know, what you're going through and they kind of understand it, it's not, it doesn't, I mean, it makes you feel better about, you don't have as much pressure on you to be the person you always to try to be this person that people think you are or whatever. So um, and it's not easy to talk about sometimes people have issues with, you know, and it, it's not always the best thing to talk about it. I guess if that's not where you're at right now, if it's, it's going to make you more anxious to talk about it, just put yourself out there. Well, don't do it yet. You're probably not ready to sit there and to socialize with people and talk about your problems. But with me, I wouldn't be where I'm at without being open. Um, it, when I get anxious and depression hits me is when I try to bottle everything up and not talk about things. So for me, it's, it's very therapeutic to actually sit here on top of you um, on a Zoom call and kind of get it out there. Because, you know, if, if same thing when I did, I did gun safety, hunter safety for a while, telling people my story. And if I, if I, if I can help one person from having a gun accident, it's all worth, my whole story's been worth it. If I can help, you know, a few people, one person even from dealing and having these issues with mental health, um, if I can help them through their problems, then I'm here. So I'm not an expert by any means. I live day to day, just like other people do, but um, I live it. I'm not, you know, BSing about it. I'm not, you know, saying I have it, not having it. I have depression and anxiety literally every single day. Some days you can't tell and other days I don't want to talk to you. I won't, I won't answer the phone. I don't make phone calls. I, I'll make, I'll, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't text you back. Cause I just, I, it just hits me to the point where it's like, I can chat your ear off doing this, but I might take me a day to send you a text back. Cause that makes me anxious. So I would rather sit in a, in a, in a school or a, or a business full of 3000 people and tell my story then go in and maybe order a part from Napa. If that makes, <laughs> literally yeah. that sense. Like it hits me in different ways. Like I love telling my story. I love getting people and helping people, but to make a phone call about something business related, sometimes it might take me a week to get that phone call made to get my courage up to make that phone call. Um, so I'm not the only one that happens to, I know. And I, I'm horrible about returning, horrible about returning calls and texts sometimes because I physically can't do it. I mentally can't get myself or I mentally can't do it. I physically can't get myself to text back or call. I mean, it literally puts you in a spot where I don't want to, it makes you uh, just sad, I guess is the word for it, or you just, you just can't handle it. So um, being in the beef business, trying to return phone calls and this and that, trying to sell my beef has kind of helped me a little bit, but I still, I still battle that all the time. 
that's a, such an important public service announcement uh, for anxiety because I think, mm-hmm. I know you're not alone. There are many people that deal with this. And I'm sure that a person that doesn't know you or know what you're going through thinks like, huh, not interested or doesn't want to get back to me on stuff. But there's this whole other element to it that people should be aware about, right? That it's not that you don't want to return the call or make the deal or whatever it is, but there's this anxiety to it sometimes. Yeah, it's and it's real. I mean, it's crippling sometimes. It literally can... Um, turn you from a world-class athlete into a lump of coal in about two seconds. So, and it just takes, boom, that fast, and you can be a different person. What sort of accountability, in a good way, does it bring to you to talk about your addiction or your, or your mental health? Is it, is it important? Is it, does it help keep you on the right path to, to kind of open up about these things? Yeah, I think so. I think it, I mean, like I said before, if I can help other people, it's all worth it. So in my mind, if I, if I'm not doing this, it kind of gives me more anxiety about, I should be doing more to help others. Um, so I, you know, like I said, I would, the goal in the next couple of years is to be kind of transitioned to a, a motivational speaker, maybe not say full-time, but as many as people want me there, you know, you want something done. I'd love to travel and talk to your company, school, whatever it is about, um, failure, success. A lot of my stories are a lot more about failing than about succeeding. Um, cause you can't really get anywhere in this life without failing a thousand times before you hit that one goal. So, and my speeches I kind of give are more raw. They're not, you know, this, Oh, you know, go happy, good luck story. They're not dark, but they're, they're honest. They're, you know, talk about, um, things that happened in my life and, you know, individual situations where I was being, dumb or you know doing things that weren't so great and being a not so nice person and then you build yourself back up to where i'm at now but um that's what i love more about anything is just getting the word out there and maybe helping other people is is there a story when you think back the ones that you share that you that you find very impactful to people one that seems to resonate um it's not really probably just the overview of of everything i've been through kind of hits um my one of my favorite ones is, is right now in high schools and stuff, you know, online bowling is a huge deal. And it's just, I, I've always wanted to say, I always want to start a business. That's a, it's a punching a nose business that if you say <laughs> something online that you wouldn't say in person, cause you get punched in the nose. Like, <laughs> I mean, people are just mean online. So people have no filter when it comes in. There's no consequences for what you say. Um, so when I go talk to high schools and even younger with this and that, I always say that, you know, when I was in high school, I was, I was kind of a bully and I was bullied with the red hair and this and that, but I was also a sports and being on the jock side of it too. So I've kind of seen both sides of it. So I kind of understand the feeling of, of both being, you know, ashamed that I was a bully, but also feeling the same feeling of getting made fun of because I had red hair and what's, who cares if I have red hair now? Like it's just those stupid things that make no sense when you're older, but at the time in high school, it's, it sucks sometimes. It's hard to get, to go to school um because people are mean to you and you have to you know try to get past that and so i kind of like that little story because it kind of opens people up that maybe he doesn't you know he wants to listen wants to talk to you um but yeah it's it's a tough world out there right now just to switch gears a little bit you mentioned selling beef and i read that uh, some of your days look like 12 to 14 hour days running a farm um i know very little about running a farm so what what does a 12 or 14 hour day look like for you well, like today, I was um, up at 5.30. I was putting coolers in my mom. I'm actually sitting in my mom's minivan right now, to be honest, in Beatrice, Nebraska, on be- delivering beef right now. So um, 
I filled everything up in my in my garage or my parents' garage where the cooler or the freezers are at, and I had to, actually had to go to my processors in, in Elwood, Nebraska, to get more beef picked up. And I headed to uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, um, delivered to a few places there. Um, now I'm in Beatrice, Nebraska, waiting to go deliver another quarter of beef. And I still have to go try to find a, a track to get a workout in yet um, on the way home to Eustis. So I'll probably get home at about seven o'clock tonight. So that'll be, a, you know, right at a 12 hour day right there. Um, other days, what was picking corn right before the world championships in Dubai, we were getting up early, getting all the chores done for the cattle, checking cows. And then we were in, I was in the combine till 10 o'clock that night trying to get um all the corn picked before i left and it didn't happen but so i was getting workouts in and you know on highways cornfields alfalfa fields wherever i had 20 30 minutes when the trucks were all full or dad my dad was backed up dumping stuff i just try to get whatever i could get in so you know other days are not that hectic i can take more time and hang out but it seems like when you when every time i'm i'm ready to go for there's there's big meats coming up in this and that is our busiest time too so it kind of kind of always goes hand to hand that whenever i'm getting ready for a big track you know, i also have to be on the farm for a lot of hours, you know, cause like during track season, it's calving season for us, you know, the first part of the month in January, February, March, April. So I'm doing a lot of calving and then night checking. Um, so you can work 24 hour, 48 hours straight. I don't come home sometimes in snowstorms because it's too bad. You have to stay in the barn and I have a lazy boy chair in our barn and office that yeah. I sleep in to get cows all night long. So you gotta do what you gotta do. I've, I've heard this term and I'm sure you have too, the idea of being country strong. And I wonder is, is there things you get from just the manual activity of running a farm that translates well to track? So that's one of the big things I think is why I'm successful is, you know, my whole job before working out or lifting or running is already physical as it is. So for me to get that workout in without even knowing I'm getting a workout in um, and then get to go to the gym and actually do the correct movements with the right weights, I think it, it helps me 100%. I don't think I would be at the point I'm at now if I was – say a sponsored full-time athlete, I don't think I would be as far ahead. Um, I have a different drive. Um, I do things, sometimes I, I park farther away to go carry salt and mineral, which are 50 pound bags to the vehicle, just park, you know, 20, 30, 40 feet away. So I got to carry them farther. Um, if I'm feeling good, I'll do things the hard way instead of the easy way, you know, lifting stuff or working out. So I absolutely think it's, it's a, it's an advantage for me to be, have an active, um, active job on top of training. What's the end goal uh, for you in track? Is there, is there an ultimate when it comes to the Paralympics and medals, events, that sort of thing? Um, the end goal, I guess, well, my first made the goal, I just want to make Team USA. And of course, that's not enough now. Um, but there's, you know, for me just to make Team USA for the Paralympics, there's four people in my division and, and the T64 is my category that are, well, th three of them that are in my division and besides me are all world record holders at one point in time. So um, you only take three in each event. So, you know, the 100, 200, um, there's three of us that, or four of us total, but three of them that are faster, have been faster than me in the past. So for me just to make the team would be amazing. But past that, of course, you want to go there and compete well. My biggest thing is the first goal I have in, in the trials in June is to make the team. Um, that's going to be a feat in itself for me because, you know, technically I could be sitting fourth or fifth in the world and not make Team USA because there's three people faster from Team USA in my division. So we're going to start there. And of course, after that, we'll tune things up for uh, August in the Paralympics. But um, we're going to start with making Team USA first. Very, very cool. Uh, when I plugged Eustis, Nebraska into Wikipedia and Google, it said population was a few hundred people. What's the, what's the response there to what you've been doing and your story? How do people react when they see you around? 
Oh, they um, it's it's crazy, and it's always been you know a good job. Congratulations, you know, you're doing awesomeness and that. And like I said, I'd rather take a criticism and then a, beside the compliment. Like I'm a person that I like to get criticized in track and field. Um, I'm the hardest on myself. I always think I'm not doing it. I should have ran faster, should have did better, or should have had better form. But as far as you know, people coming down the community, they're very, very supportive. Um, I have nothing but great support from everybody in my family and from the community. And I wouldn't be here without you know all of them. The little high fives they give me, they don't think it matters maybe to them, but it sure is the push when you're training by yourself for track and field and sprinting. It's not a lot of fun on the track when it's 98 degrees with you know no 100% humidity in Nebraska. And you're there with nobody watching you do your workout. Um, if you don't do it, nobody's going to know but yourself. So you have to hold yourself accountable um, to get where you're at. Very good stuff. A uh, couple more questions here, Kevin. But, but before we segue out, anything else you, you'd like people to know when it comes to, to those important topics you hit on earlier, mental health, addiction, those sorts of things? Um, biggest thing is just, just try to find somebody that will, if you're ready to talk about it, just talk about it. Um, you know, it's sometimes it's the, like I said, usually that first step is the hardest, you know, getting out of bed the days you have issues. It could just be getting out of bed. That might be all you need to, to jumpstart your day, but you just need to be able to be open with people. And um, if, if they're not willing to listen, then either they're not a good enough friend or not, you know, sometimes to cut the cord in people's lives is hard to do, but you're not made to be friends with everybody. That's not what your goal in life should be. So some people won't agree with you. Some people don't understand what you're going through. Maybe they never will. So that's not their fault. It's just, you're a different person. And it's hard for some people to realize how bad it can be sometimes, you know, might say suck it up or this and that, but they've never, never dealt with, you know, the crippling effects of, of um, anxiety and depression. So just, I guess, open up as much as you can. Really, really sound advice. Uh, we end every one of these interviews with our three what's good questions. And I'll start with the first one. What's, and you're probably going to hit on maybe some of the things you've been doing, or maybe it's something yeah. else, but what's something you've done for yourself lately? Um, I just, just, just try to keep myself honest. You know, try to not make excuses. I'm, I'm really busy right now and trying. I just got back from Seattle getting some new legs made. And I kind of um, took some time off for Seattle to make sure I was 100% to try the new legs out and this and that. So I'm trying to get back in the swing of things, uh, being busy, getting up early, getting to the, the gym and stuff like that. And I made a few excuses this, this week about not going because I was kind of sore. trying to. My, there's a fine line between you let your body heal and be happy, you know, and then not saying, oh, I'm hurt, you know. So me being 35, I have to be kind of, nice to myself and you know if things are aching a little bit change things up a little bit or do things a different way but for me it's just to keep yourself honest if I don't keep myself honest and I keep telling lies to myself it's when I get it's when I get depressed and anxious about things that shouldn't shouldn't affect me because I started lying to myself so always be honest with yourself and then what's something you've done for someone else in your life um oh in my life oh man recently I I, I like I guess speaking is a huge part of my life. I want it to be a bigger part of my life. I had the opportunity just about a month ago, my high school coach, I might get choked up here, but um, he was inducted in the Nebraska Sports Hall of Fame. Um, so he was a big mentor in my life about um, track and field. And he's always been a supporter in the journey I'm on now. So I got to say his speech during halftime of a football game for him. And it was it was rushed and it was, I bawled the whole time. So it was one of my worst speeches I've ever gave in my life. But just being there and having them ask me to give that speech meant the world to me to know that I probably wouldn't be in a situation I'm in now without having somebody that was, um, was pushing me and saw my potential even in high school, you know, um, 16 years ago, you know, almost 20 years ago um, as a freshman to see me be the runner I am today. It's just, it was pretty awesome to, 
to see him succeed and have him, you know, be in the Nebraska Sports Hall of Fame, that was pretty awesome. So many athletes I've talked to during this time, the coach-athlete relationship, when, it, when it's good, it is, it is so impactful and so essential to the success, really, of the coach and the athlete. Absolutely. And I was actually recently um, awarded the, I gotta see if I say it, the National uh, Sports, what is it, National Games Council, as, National Athlete of the, Male Athlete of the Year. Okay. Um, it's like Nebraska State Games. So it's Nebraska, Nebraska Council of State Games, Male Athlete of the Year. So I won against all the other states, um, which is a, a huge honor. And it's just, you know, to know how far I've come in this whole journey, you know, it's, it's always, sometimes always, you always wonder if it's worth it. I always say if I couldn't be one of the top five or whatever athletes in the world, I wouldn't do this because it just takes too much time, too much money, too much effort, too much dedication and too much sacrifice and me not see my family sometimes to do what I do. So to see, you know, me hit, you know, get that award, I think it was, it's more awesome or awesome or whatever the word is just for me later on to use that, to try to get, more speeches and try to use that to impact more people, impact people's lives. You know, that's, that's what I, I look forward to. When you want to have a little release, something that makes you laugh, what do you turn to? Oh man. I, I love, uh, um, or, uh, Brooklyn nine, nine on, yeah. on watching the little Netflix. I watch the, I like, I like to lose myself in, I, and I find motivation in some of those shows too. Like I watched the last 100 or the, the 100 about people coming from space back down to earth and, you know, they make hard decisions about people living and dying. And even though it's, I know it's a TV show, it kind of puts things in perspective about sometimes the issues that I have shouldn't be that big of a deal. So, you know, they always say, if you, if you're not going to think about a thought five years from now, why are you stressing over it now? Um, so I like to lose myself in kind of TV shows and I kind of, I, I gain mo or motivation from and inspiration from a lot of different things. And actually I kind of find when I try to lose myself and relax, it kind of, when my creative juices kind of start, kind of start flowing about how to be a better person. So that's kind of what I like to do. Two, two final, uh, very localized questions. What's the best pie from the village pie maker? Oh gosh. Um, I'm a cherry fan, so it's gotta be cherry all the way. And the guy that, uh, runs a beef company, lazy Creek, the appropriate way to order a steak is. Um, I'd be either rare or medium rare. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Kevin, this was, this was great. Really appreciate you taking the time and uh, hopefully we'll see you in Tokyo next summer. Best of luck with everything. Hey, thank you so much, Greg. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, kind of get my name or the journey out there and kind of let people know that, you know, I'm here if I need, need me too. So thank you.